Hey, welcome to another week on the Base Training Podcast. Uh, this week we have uh, another guest who's also been on twice now from Stomach Conditioning, uh, Mr. Alex Butt. And we're going to be talking and discussing a little bit further into the tactical athlete world. Um, more specifically this time about sleep and nutrition um, and factors affecting uh, tactical athletes. It will probably lean more towards military athletes as kind of that's our experience, uh, but we're going to make sure that we get in um, some discussion around paramedics, police, firefighters, uh, and the uh, sorry, special operative world. Um, yeah, excellent. So, Alex, why don't you introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, who you are, so people <laughs> that don't know can find you. That's it. It's like the game show we were discussing. So, uh, hi guys, my name is Alex. Uh, Alex Butt. I'm a part of Stoic Conditioning. I'm the head of human performance there. Um, Stoic Conditioning is all about uh, our niches: training tactical athletes, uh, training people who use their bodies day to day and have to have a high level of strength and conditioning and. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much it. So Stoic Conditioning, you can find us at stoicconditioning.com. Uh, we've got an Instagram and Facebook page that we pump out loads of information on, so check us out. Excellent stuff. So for those of you who don't know, you can find Base Training at www.base.training uh, if you want more information about that. Uh, you can find me personally, um, Lee at Lee Carter UK on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, Will, where can everyone find you? Um, so Instagram coach underscore will underscore Strathy, Facebook Will Strathy Health and Fitness Coach, uh, LinkedIn Will Strathy, and email is will at base stop training. Stefan, what about you? Yeah, uh, Instagram same as Will. You can find me coach. Uh, yeah, coach underscore Stefan underscore Winder. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn Stefan Winder MSC, and you can find me on Facebook Stefan Winder Strength and Movement Coach. You can email me Stefan at base dot training. Excellent stuff. I was a little bit uh, taken aback by how fast Will got through his, his intro. It usually takes a more practice. quiet. <laughs> I usually forget where, what my uh, social media is. <laughs> so, uh, as we said, we're going to be talking about tactical athletes. And for those that haven't um, or don't know what a tactical athlete is and they haven't listened to our previous podcast, firstly, I'd recommend go back and listen to those. Um, they tell you how to pass SAS selection, um, part one and two. Um, but Alex, why don't you give us just a, a brief intro to what a tactical athlete is for those that don't know? So when we started Stoic Conditioning, we kind of started using this phrase tactical athlete to really describe the, the demographic and the, the community that we wanted to build around Stoic Conditioning and who we wanted to really help. Um, but for us, uh, Stoic Conditioning, the team at Stoic Conditioning, we kind of tactical athlete obviously has military connotations and our niche market is helping people with military applications. So be it Royal Marine Commando, Parachute Regiment, UKSF, or even any any other regiment, you know, you're going into, that's the people that we're we're really aiming our, our training at. And we've specifically built all of our training programs and all of the information we pump out is to help that person. But a tactical athlete really is, for us, is anyone that uses their, their strength and conditioning, their fitness, their body uh, day-to-day in their day-to-day job. Um, you know, if they're a competitor in any sport, then, you know, they're an athlete. Whether or not it's <laughs> tactical is uh, up, for, up for their um, 
own interpretation but a tactical athlete might be you know a police officer fire ambulance a tree surgeon foresters people that use their bodies pretty vigorously throughout the day um and need to have like high levels of strength and conditioning output and keep that consistent throughout their whole life because you know if their body then starts to take a backward slide they're not as efficient or as good as their job or it might just be that you know they're only just good at their job and then they get home at night and they can't really enjoy their life because they're for want of a better phrase fucking knackered so <laughs> you know so really kind of uh, getting our training programs to help people like that that was uh, that was everything that we we designed them for in terms of that tactical athlete phrase so I wanted to keep the first part of this a little bit more general so for nutrition what does that look like for the tactical athlete in general so that includes I suppose the the medics the police and the firefighters of the world and I think the the special forces part um, for those that probably heard the the abbreviation UKSF that stands for United Kingdom Special Forces Um, so if you don't get confused and that, I think that kind of differs, doesn't it? There's, it's a slightly, it's a bit more extreme. So, how does it? What does it look like for a medic, police, and firefighter in your view? Well, I think it really, more so than anything, it would differ in the the structure and kind of like their daily um, layout of food that they can get and kind of the timings and stuff like that is probably a little bit more conformed to a regular structure when you're you know doing a job outside of the military sometimes in the military you have times where you are just you can't eat or you have to eat while you're doing something um so that falls under a bracket that i think we'll probably discuss a little bit later in terms of like the sf like nutrition for special forces that kind of stuff or even nutrition for any tactical athlete um in the military world but um yeah i think I mean, shall I go just dive straight into like macros and stuff like that? Um, yeah, we can do. Don't see why not. But I was going to ask you the question anyway. <laughs> so what, yeah. what does it? What does like the macro spin? We'll keep. I suppose we can separate it a little bit. What does it look like for um, your average paramedic, firefighter, or what should it look like, and uh, police officer? Yeah. Well, in terms of nutrition, nutrition comes back to everyone likes to put nutrition under one umbrella. So, you know, the world should be eating this way or the world should be eating this diet or everyone who does this sport should be doing this diet. And it's like, you know, that's bullshit, really. We're all individual. Everyone needs and requires different things at different times. We all have different backgrounds as well that we've grown up eating different foods and different timings and stuff like that. So really, it's very, very varied. And the best diet is the one that works for you is something that pops around as a saying. Um, And yeah, that is absolutely true. It doesn't mean that you can't change that diet. The human body has a, a massive capacity for changing. But if you're like someone who's eaten very low carb for a really long time and then all of a sudden you go to a very high carb diet, it's going to be a bit of a change for the body. So you're going to have to give it time to adjust to that and fluctuating either way like that as well. So in terms of nutrition for, I suppose, really nutrition for your average population or you know, police, fire, ambulance, stuff like that, you've got to have enough fuel i suppose we could go down the route of uh like we like to call it um fueling for performance or eating for performance 
which basically boils down to eating enough to fuel your performance, but not enough to support an increase in body fat, which for most of our demographic isn't going to be very helpful. So what does that look like? Really with macronutrients, it's about finding the macro intake that's going to best help that. And again, there's a ton of macro calculators out there, as I'm sure you guys can chime in and <laughs> agree with. There's a ton of macro calculators out there. There's a ton of uh, companies out there that all have different ratios, different calculations to calculate your macros. But at the end of the day, everyone's different. The way we absorb food is different. The way we break down food is different. Um, so generally, if you're having you know, 10 people use the same macro calculator, it's going to spit out, well, obviously different macros because everyone's different in terms of their weight and height and output, but also how we absorb that food. So if the four of us are all eating 2000 calories, I might digest and absorb them slightly different to everyone else here as well. So it's a very individualistic approach. And what that boils down to is use macro calculators or use a macronutrient breakdown initially or you know however you want to start breaking down your nutrition use that initially but then just always know that you've got to adjust it depending on you know the week that you've had how much output that you've had how much sleep that you've gotten or stuff like that really Excellent. so how does that obviously because with um like firefighters and police and medics more specifically they're on shift work most of them um, i know the again slightly different from the military there's not too much shift work unless you're in a specific role um mm. so how does that affect like should someone be having more carbs based on it based on or should they be eating more protein what would you suggest to someone in that role again we know it's individualized but from a general point of view yeah absolutely so there's no one macronutrient that in massive amounts or little amounts is going to benefit someone more so than eating a balanced uh, a balanced nutritional intake of proteins carbohydrates and fats so as long as you're getting kind of the base intake of protein which you know there's a lot of research and guys chime in because you guys have got the masters in uh, in nutrition so let me know if i'm way off topic or uh, if i'm way behind times but in terms of protein even as low as 0.8 grams per kilogram has been shown to be sufficient. Now that's sufficient for maybe someone who's just sat around doing jack shit, but one gram per pound is pretty much a buy-in for most protein intakes as well. Um, so for me, I'm 110, so that's like 240 pounds. So around 240 grams of protein a day um, is like a general rule of thumb for, for most, most athletes. Um, yeah, so I suppose what I'm trying to say is that we take the approach of more of a balanced approach of nutritional intake rather than inhibiting or, you know, emphasizing one macronutrient massively over the other. So, you know, when it comes down to a percentage, maybe like a 30, 40, 30 in terms of protein, carbohydrates, fat is usually the best place to start. And then depending on how you feel and how you react to having higher or lower carbohydrates or higher or lower fat intake, you can always adjust accordingly to that. And then when you're going into shift work as well, breaking that down. So there's a lot of research that shows that really, if you get 
one or two meals a day as opposed to four, five, or six meals a day, as long as you're hitting the right amount of caloric intake in those two meals or the right amount of caloric intake in your five meals, depending on your macronutrients, it, it doesn't matter like either way. So having those small dosages of food throughout the day doesn't mean that you're going to ignite your metabolism or anything like that. That's pretty much a myth. Uh, but equally having like one huge meal a day, as long as the macronutrient intake for that meal is high enough for your whole daily intake, then research is showing that that doesn't matter. Yeah, I would agree. Um, well, see, we, we, sleep is a, a big part of this conversation as well. And that is one of the things that's massively affected, again, with the police, firefighter and paramedic world um, through shift work. How, how does the nutrition, again, from your experience and sleep, how are they interact with, interacting with each other to affect performance with uh, these, these this population? Yeah, sleep's a really big one. Sleep's a, you know, people love throwing around the word game changer at the moment. Let's not get into that. Uh, well, I think, I think that did a good job in highlighting how bad a lifestyle, especially the busy firefighters are living. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that, um, that was about it though. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of like the um sorry man. <laughs> uh someone was just offering me more coffee. I think I'm good for the moment. Um caffeine. Keep you awake. Yeah. That's it. Sorry, I've lost my train of thought there. What was the question? Again? Um how does the sleep and or the lack of sleep or sleep disruption and nutrition in the so sleep sleep affects quite a lot and you know, just from a performance point of view, sleep can massively inhibit um, a lot of our cardiac output, so a lot of our aerobic fitness quite quickly. So lack of sleep, you know, generally we're going to always struggle with uh, training output, but how it affects our nutrition. So the hormones leptin and ghrelin, um, they just get thrown out of whack. So we get hungrier throughout the day. We crave more things. Our brain is craving more sugars, more carbohydrates. It's trying to seek out stuff like that when we're on a lower sleep or a less sleep, that kind of stuff. Um, so it's being aware of that and being aware that just because we're kind of craving these things, we've got to really uh, play, pay close attention to what we're eating. And that's where having a even like a loosely structured plan of how you're going to eat on those days or how you eat most days is really going to benefit you because your brain is going to tell you you need way more food on days like that where you've had less sleep than you really really do need um you're going to feel lethargic as well which means you're going to reach for coffee reach for caffeine reach for stimulants always not necessarily the best thing to do when you're sleepy um and we can get into the whole like caffeine adenosine like actually what that does uh, at a later date as well that might fall into more military application as well um, people abuse stimulants massively um, and i think a little bit of understanding about how they actually work really gives people a better better options on how to use it and more opportune times to use it rather than just smashing a jug of coffee yeah like just because you're a bit tired. <laughs> from my own experience of working with uh, people in that population and knowing them, um, especially the the medic role, it's actually quite a sedentary role. Um, mm. And they're, they're sat in an ambulance for hours on end, waiting for a call, like driving around London, for instance. 
until they get something. And then they've got 10, 15 minutes of work and then they're back in the wagon, sitting down, um, yeah. driving to the ambulance again. Coming um, down from an adrenaline high. Exactly, yeah. So ha- is, is it actually less about performance as such and more about, okay, we're just eating for health now. We're just trying to keep you as healthy as possible. Is that the case in your experience as well? I think so. I think there's, after any kind of big output, and when we say big output, we're talking like 45, 60 minutes plus, there is an increased requirement of nutrients that need to come into the body. But generally, if you're having that kind of like, you've sat for four hours, three hours, two hours, and then all of a sudden you've got 15, 20 minutes worth of frenetic movement, but not necessarily like a high energy output. So it's stressful, but it's not requiring a lot of movement. It's not requiring you to, you know, run for 20 minutes straight. It's not requiring you to lift something and run for 20 minutes straight. It's requiring you to like be very, very cerebral and very, very conscious of your surroundings and conscious of what you're doing, which has an energy requirement for sure. But, you know, oppose that or, you know, compare that to somebody who has to run with 25 kilograms on their back for 20 minutes straight, their caloric output is going to be way bigger. So we don't necessarily need to look at it from a point of view of like, okay, we've had five calls this evening, you know, five calls times 15 minutes per call is X amount of calorie expenditure. So we need to tack that onto the end. I think that should become more of like a natural, like your this is your working day caloric intake and this is your rest day caloric intake so maybe like a slightly higher intake on the on the work days over the rest days but again it bases it it comes back to what is that person's goal is their goal simply to perform at work and be high performing and as you say like eating for health and longevity or are they eating for a specific goal are they training outside of that Um, in which case we need to then factor in their training output outside of their role, outside of their job, and fuel them accordingly for that. Yeah, I've seen a, or come across a lot of people that have a, there's, there's a body composition aspect to it, because I've mm-hmm. noted that there's a, a massive accumulation of sort of fat around the kind of kidney, low back area, yeah. um, which from my own research has been usually been impacted by hormone dysfunction due to sleep um, disruption. What uh, have you recommended to people in the past that are looking for that goal? Again, with it, I suppose more specifically within the firefighter, police, and paramedic world, and doctors yeah. and nurses, I suppose you could probably put in in that bracket as well. That are suffering with that, and that's maybe affecting confidence and maybe even performance. And he- obviously, if it's affecting their health, then it's probably yeah. going to affect their performance at some point. Yeah, body composition is an interesting one. <laughs> I worked with a body composition specialist gym for a really long time in London. Um, they're they're um, an awesome gym, um, probably the best in the world for body composition stuff. And we, we used to take on, I used to train quite a lot of people who had shift work. And you're right in terms of that body fat distribution, like uh, lower back, upper back, even down into like hamstrings and uh, leg distribution of fat is a big one and there's there's studies that show like high stress and high cortisol and like consistently high stress and cortisol equals more visceral fat around the abdominals you know some of that research is 
I think, been taken to the nth degree in some literature in the in the strength and conditioning or health and fitness world. Um, but there's still some merit behind it. So it's not you can't throw the baby out with bathwater, as you know you can't do that with anything in this industry. Really, I think a lot of people put their name to throwing ba- the baby out with the bathwater in terms of information. But that's going off on a tangent. That's a so, brilliant analogy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think people who are looking for a body composition um, change or looking for body composition results over anything else, I find that sometimes you need to really dial them into that goal and that goal only. Changing body in terms of body composition is simple but not easy. And I always say that to people, you know, it's it's almost as simple as an equation, not quite. <laughs> um, there is a science to body composition work, but there's also an art and there's a lot of psychology behind it as well, as you said, um, just in terms of people's self-confidence and people's belief of change and things like that. You've got to factor in like their day-to-day role, their activities of daily living. That's an absolutely huge thing. You know, even if you take somebody who wants to change their body composition, keep everything the same, just get them to walk for 20 minutes a day, they'll start to change. It's again, it's simple, but it's not easy. So when it comes to that population, we've got to have a look at how many times during the week is their sleep being disrupted? And what are the best strategies for that person on those days that they're being disrupted? My advice is always when it comes to the days where your sleep's out because of shift work, try and treat your waking hours as you would as if you were waking up normally in in the morning so if you're waking up at 8 a.m and you you know go to the bathroom then you have some coffee then you have some breakfast and then you have some coffee and then you go and train that kind of thing and then you go to work if that's your 8 a.m to say 10 p.m day-to-day life when it's flipped and you have to go to work for 10 p.m and you're getting up at 8 p.m nothing changes so you get up at 8 p.m you have your you go to the bathroom you have your breakfast (laughs) and and then you just carry on throughout the day like that but it's just it flips and with our circadian rhythm then then that becomes a bit of an issue but the body loves structure and the body loves and our circadian rhythm in particular loves that um regimented approach to our day-to-day life so if you're waking up on those days where you have shift work and your routine is just completely flipped on its head if you're training before you go to bed on those days so really early in the morning whereas normally you train first thing in the morning or first thing in the morning um, when you wake up normally then your body's just going to be a little bit out of whack like that if on those days you're only eating two meals, but normally you eat three or four meals a day, again, that's another rhythm. Our body is full of clocks. Like our circadian rhythm isn't just one clock. Um, it's a clock that's based on our sleep. It's based on our eating habits. Our, it's based on our bathroom habits. It's based on you know, our rest habits, our exercise habits, things like that. So if you can regiment as much of your day from your waking moment regardless of whether it's 8 a.m or 8 p.m if you can stick to that same uh like regime throughout the entire day that's going to be a lot more a lot better for your body it's going to be a lot less disruptive for your body and then on those days as well the macronutrients um try and keep them the same try and keep the intake around the same times 
but again if you're on shift and you can only like you can only eat two or three times um sorry one or two times on your shift then in your days off try not to eat five times like don't disrupt your body like that it's kind of setting yourself up for failure at that point so it's trying as much as possible to stick to a routine as such yeah, yeah. and then yeah absolutely <laughs> how would how does stress and stress management impact the um <clears throat> this population because you see it is long hours and it is um uh, quite a stressful role, I suppose, if you're dealing with an, an, a road traffic accident. And again, that's going to encompass all three of the emergency services. Um, mm-hmm. How how do we, uh, or what, what tips do you have for people to, I suppose, that only maybe have a short period of time to eat? Um, and we know that if they're eating in a sympathetic state, it might, be, it might not be um, great for their digestion. How do, or what, what, what's the question i'm trying to ask what um what tips do you have for people to i suppose get into that parasympathetic state and that relaxed state to, in in short periods of time or can they is that even possible absolutely there, there's a lot of research on that um there's a whole uh movement at the moment on breathing and mindfulness and you know even twinning that with ice water exposure and stuff like that um which has its merit but the main thing is when we our breathing is linked to our nervous system and our breathing is linked to our sympathetic and parasympathetic output so in those times where we've had a massive stress input to our body and our body has then equally given us a massive stress output actually you're probably in a better position to calm your body down at that point than you are if you're just like say sat in traffic in london and but you're still having to move around in traffic in london like that's a stressful position to be in but it's kind of not that massive oh shit i've got to run like there's a saber-toothed cat running at me kind of stress output so our adrenals haven't had to pump out a load of um noradrenaline stuff like that so when we've had those massive outputs returning to a baseline is as simple as resting mindfulness and breathing so you know you say you're in an ambulance you've had to go to a a road traffic incident and then you finish that you've cleaned up you've got back in the back in the wagon and again this someone who's 15 20 years into this role will have a much better tolerance to this than someone who's just started as well so but equally both of those people need to still manage that stress output um but for someone who this is kind of like their first couple of roles that is their stress is going to be a lot higher so their stress output is not going to be uh what am i trying to say in line with the, the situation Whereas someone who's been 10 years, 15 years, and has seen multiple things like this, it's kind of like, I've seen this before. So their stress might peak a little bit because it helps their adrenaline go up and it helps them be more in the moment. But I would hedge my bets that their their levels of stress as opposed to someone who's you know one year into the role are probably gonna be a lot less. Um, so returning to base levels, 
getting back into the getting back into an ambulance afterwards sitting breathing discussing it um you know when you when you keep things in it keeps like our stress levels quite high so discussing things and then breathing so getting into that parasympathetic nervous state with your breath work is a a well-researched thing and if you look at the works that um I mean, Wim Hof is a big one for breath and mindfulness at the moment, um, and has been for a long time. So his stuff really works, and it's been proven. Um, Brian McKenzie and the guys that work with him are really good with breath work as well. I've done a lot of stuff with them, like that kind of relaxation-based breathing, and you know, the, going from a military application, they teach box box breathing as well, which is kind of four seconds in, four seconds hold, four seconds out, four seconds hold. You can do any variations of that. There's triangle breathing, which would be like, you know, say five seconds in, uh, hold for a few seconds and then 10 seconds out. You're trying to go for that one to two second, uh, one to two ratio of breath in to breath out, or even one to three, if you can manage it. Always nasally breathing. Um, so when we breathe through our mouth, it actually activates our, our nervous system a little bit because that's kind of a stress response. So if you're just starting out in exercise or you're just going for just starting a run, for example, and you start mouth breathing early, um, that's going to heighten your stress levels. Whereas if you try and remain nasally breathing, it keeps that uh, nervous system in check. So coming off of an incident, if you're sitting there panting or breathing through your mouth, it's not going to allow your stress levels to come down as efficiently as if you were sat there breathing mindfully through your nose. So just simple tricks like that, and then twin that with some uh, nutrition. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose summing up then, what what are the common problems that you're uh, with, with firefighters and police and medics that you're coming across that um, you've you've been able to solve or been able to offer advice on? Um, in what regard would you say? Um, for, for sleep and nutrition, what, what, like, what are the general things that you're seeing um, or the biggest things that you're seeing that can have the biggest yeah. impact? Just so well, people think, have got like, actionable, actionable things to walk away from this podcast with. For sure. So a lot of the guys that we've worked with, um, particularly in fire as well, uh, as well as police, um, coming off that shift pattern and trying to get their sleep back to a normal rhythm as quickly as they can. I think we would, I mean, we've discussed that a little bit in terms of like, try and get your routine back as much as you can. There are supplements that you can use as well, um, to help out with that. But generally we try and keep things as like naturally based as possible, but even magnesiums can help. Uh, relax your nervous systems in the evenings or at the end of your days um like certain forms of magnesium not magnesium oxide <laughs> that's fun to stay away from um and then in terms of nutrition is not it's just being mindful you know a lot of the time when we get nutritional diaries or, or food journals back from um, people in fire or ambulance or police settings we see this massive volume of food taken in after shifts so it's you know your mind's coming down you're you might be on your way to bed or on your way to sleep and there's kind of this mindlessness snacking or uh just taking on more calories and all of a sudden it's kind of like you know say for example we've got someone on and this is just 
throwing figures out. Say, for example, we've got someone on 3,000 calories a day, and then all of a sudden we're looking at their food journals, uh, and towards the end of the day, they're just taking on an extra 800 to 1,000 calories, just almost mindlessly, and you're like, okay, well, that's really not going to help with your body composition. Was it really necessary or was it mindless? Um, so just being mindful about food and mindful about eating habits um, is really beneficial for, for that demographic. We like to link that with training because when, you, when your training is generally regimented and when it's uh, structured well, your nutrition will fall into that. Your sleep happens, habits will also fall into line um, because we try and link it all around that. So you're training for a goal. To get that goal, you're going to need to eat in this way. So we need to be mindful about that. To get that goal, you also need to sleep in this way. It doesn't matter if your sleep is disrupted. One day it doesn't make or break you. So just like here and there, just kind of guiding them towards that goal. Cool. So how does, when it comes to kind of uh, branch off now into the, I suppose, the special forces world and the military um, application, how does the I'm gonna I'm gonna use the a slightly more extreme the I suppose the special forces. Um, how does how does their nutrition differ from the general population, and that includes I suppose then the medics, police, and firefighter, well, and emergency services. Is there any difference like, in terms of advice? And... We would argue that it wouldn't really differ in kind. It would more just differ in scale. You've just got to consider the amount of output that that person is going to do. So, you know, for for someone going through selection, for example, their output is going to be ridiculously high. Not only are they physically outputting way more calories uh, than normal, but also their sleep is disrupted. Their times that they're available to eat are slightly disrupted. So everything is a little bit disrupted, which means their caloric input has to be way, way higher just to fuel them for the subsequent tasks that they have to do day in and day out all, all week, basically on, on selection. When they're actually serving and operating, nutrition's a little bit more structured, meal times are a little bit more structured, their role still comes under the shift, um, shift workers kind of discussion that we had earlier in terms of like sleep, nutrition, hydration, all of those things just being in line with your waking and sleeping time, really. But being fueled for an activity, um, we've got to consider like how long that person's going to be doing something for. The, the nutritional requirements for someone doing an hour's exercise in an air-conditioned gym, maybe peaking at like 32 sets of resistance, <laughs> resistance training exercises, as opposed to uh, a guy on selection in really bad conditions in uh in wales with 25 kilograms on their back plus food plus water you know and also having to walk for four hours their caloric input is going to need to be way higher cool so why don't we dig into that a little bit because i suppose the operating world once they pass selection is is very similar to that of the medics firefighters and Mm -hmm. there's not too much it differs there so what is the what is the difference then? i suppose for the selection process there's going to be a few people listening to this um based off its title for the podcast uh, <laughs> clickbait um <laughs> uh, 
so how what, what the selection process then what for those that don't know what does that in, entail for the first phase um this is where it's like how much can i discuss yes. uh, <laughs> so the i mean that yeah. you can you can google uk special forces application and and have a look at uh at what it entails the first four weeks is called the or the first phase is called the hills phase and it takes place in wales and it's basically a, a physical <laughs> a very arduous physical task <laughs> pretty much every day for uh, a number of weeks so that person going through that selection process my biggest thing for them is a practice 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 the roots if you can um, or practice just getting out and how you your body feels during you know three four five six hour yomps with work you know with weight on your back as well practice your nutritional strategies as well so practice the, not only the the amount that you eat to get you through that and not feel like you're absolutely shagged at the end of it but also practice the foods be familiar with certain foods that you're going to be eating during that it's no good you practicing um, and having like poor example but like protein bars and bananas and then when you're on selection having like sandwiches and carbohydrate gels and things like that um, what you're going to be practicing with should be what you're going to be using on the actual task itself because the body loves regularity. So if you disrupt it in any way like that, especially under those conditions, you're probably, well, nine times out of 10, you, you're gonna uh, give yourself some uh, GI distress, <laughs> um, would be one way to put it, or uh, shit your pants would be another way to put it. Um, so for someone who's looking at going at selection, your nutrition needs to be something that you factor in and arguably your nutrition is one of the most important things that you can be looking at and you, that you can be working on or working out what's going to be best for you it's a bit of an unseen thing that a lot of people will then go on selection and be like yeah i fucked that up because i didn't eat enough or I ate something that didn't agree with me, or I didn't realize that my nutritional strategy should change a little bit because I've had six hours worth of output today. You know, those things are a bit of an oversight. And after the fact, you know, if you've, if you've gone all the way through this, you know, the pro process even to get to day one of selection, and, you know, a week later, you're being hauled out because your nutrition wasn't up to scratch that's going to be really shit. That's going to feel really bad because you're going to be like, like, I'm physically able to do this, but I didn't eat enough on day one. And therefore on day two felt like two pounds of shit in a one pound bag. So, you know, it's a, it's a big one that we try and stress with our guys is that don't set yourself up for success and don't leave this stone unturned because nutrition is a, is a big, big deal. So, again, getting a little bit more specific, mm -hmm. rucking uh, or tabbing or yomping, whatever you want to call it, you've got a heavy bag on your back, you're going for 20, 30k, um, you know, it's wet, rainy, it's whales, you're going up, up big hills <laughs> and down big hills, you're turning your ankles and things like that. What would you recommend someone eats 
in that period of time? Should they, like you mentioned, protein bars and bananas, should they be mm-hmm. eating that or should they be going for the, again, um, we're kind of taking the practice part out of it and it's the individual part. Or should they be going for energy gel based off blood sugar levels? Um, or should they be eating pizzas and subways? Like what, what should they be doing? Yeah, there's a big, uh, big um, thing in ultra marathon runners to eat pizzas as they're running, right? Um, I've trained to quite a few of them, and that's that's awesome <laughs> to, to watch as someone 50 kilometers into like a 100 kilometer race just smashing a large pizza as they're running. That's hilarious to see. Um, probably not really good for uh, selection, although there are pizza places that will deliver to grid points in Wales. <laughs> just <Excellent>. saying. Uh, <laughs> uh, so my, I suppose my main point for, for during any exercise, um, anything below an hour, generally you don't need to take in extra fuel for. That being said, if you've got repeat hour-long things, throughout the day or if you've got say like a a 60 minute thing one day and then the next day you've got three hour thing it might be a good idea to get ahead of refueling yourself and just fueling up for the next day what that looks like in practice my general advice is depending on your body weight you should aim to replace around 200 to 500 calories per hour um, for anything over 60 minutes but if you're rocking um, for a long period of time, you probably want to get ahead of that. So don't wait until hour one or hour two before you're starting to take on nutrition um, because it's going to have that slight delay anyway. So your ability to absorb things is slightly delayed, especially when you're active as opposed to eating at rest. Your digestion should be a little bit faster when you're eating at rest. When you're eating on the move, your digestion is going to be a little bit slower and a little bit more compromised. So maybe don't wait and don't, um, you know, don't just start like, oh, you know, I've got four hours of work here. I'm going to start eating at 90 minutes, like start eating 30 minutes into it. Um, and look at that 200 to 500 calorie range for someone like me, as I said, like I'm 110 kilograms. If I've added 25, 30 kilograms on my back, plus food, plus water, plus, you know, anything else that I'm carrying and I'm going up and down hills, I'm going to be straying more towards 500 calories an hour, at least. Um, <laughs> we have a question. Go, go for it, Stefan. What's your question? Um, so my question is um, obviously talk about nutrient timing Yeah. Um, and the actual calorific intake. Sleep deprivation is a big part of selection for, in principle. Um, and like you're saying, we want to get that person from being sympathetically driven, which they often are when they go to bed. They might have just been chastised out on the paddock and then they smash some calories, go to sleep, and then they're only getting two hours and then they're back out again. Mm-hmm. How can you prepare someone for that? Because you said practice, practice, practice. Is it a case of actually getting that person in the habit of having little sleep so that their body can shift its clock or is there no way around that is it just kind of making the best of a bad situation yeah so there's we've discussed this quite a lot um within the team in terms of like how can we prepare someone for sleep deprivation caloric restriction as well as high output in just a like a training environment rather than actually being on selection 
I always argue that it's better to have experienced it beforehand rather than to just try and deal with it during. Um, there's a counter argument as to, you know, you want to be as highly, highly tuned as possible going into it. Um, so not disrupting sleep, trying to get their nutrition as good as possible going into it. Yep. I, I agree with that, but I also agree that practice makes perfect. And also you never want to find out if you can do something while you're doing selection because you have a finite amount of goes for it. So if you fuck it up once, then okay, well, you've only got one more try. Um, so practicing sleep deprivation beforehand can be as simple as getting up earlier in the morning. So going to bed at the same time, uh, say your bedtime and with sleep, one of the biggest things for, um, good sleep is consistency. So actually giving yourself a, a good bedtime and a good wake time throughout the day, um, sorry, throughout your, throughout your week, even at weekends. But when we're looking at, um, practicing for selection, if you're going to bed at 10 PM, if we just say like, okay, well, one day this week, we're going to get you up at 1 AM and you're going to go for a walk in the dark or get you up at like 3 AM, get you get you walking, that kind of thing. It gives them a little idea of how their body's going to be reacting to less sleep, disrupted sleep. Um, they're obviously going to be, well, not obviously, but they are probably going to be a little bit anxious and nervous. So their sleep may be broken anyway, going into that practice. So that will give them a, a little bit more of like a real time feeling of how it's going to, how, how it's going to play out. Obviously, you've then got to prep someone for like, okay, well, that was one day. You're going to be doing that for a month. So have fun with that. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think there's a, uh, there's a fine line, isn't there? Like you're, we're talking about the training to be resilient yeah. or you're training for this like, specific task. I personally would argue that it might be a little bit in, um, uh, in opposition to your, your view maybe, but uh, training to be as resilient as possible doesn't necessarily mean like subjecting yourself to sleep depth and then training and so on. It's just, yeah. I suppose it's just experiencing it once or twice so you have an idea yeah. of what it feels like. And is, is that along the lines of what you're saying? Or kind of completely just, agree, yeah. I'm just summarising it. It's, it's very much, uh, so like the next thing I was going to go on to was the psychology element, the mindset element. Um, if you talk to pretty much anyone who's gone through and passed selection, a lot of it comes down to your mindset of just not giving up and not stopping. Um, so mindset as I'm sure all three of us, or four of us, sorry, <laughs> can, uh, can attest to, can make or break any, any situation, regardless of whether it's selection or whether it's just a training session, a body composition client. Um, so within that, yes, we want to give someone the experience of being like, okay, well, you're going to go and do a four hour uh, navigation ruck uh, in Wales, in shit conditions, in training, so that you can actually feel it, you can experience it. But being like, well, we're going to do that for a week is counterproductive to the fact that you're training someone. Like you don't need to train them into the ground mentally and physically for them to, to know like, okay, well, I'm going to feel like shit. <laughs> you know, once or twice is enough. Um, especially if you're thinking like a lot of guys that are going for this process are going to be doing their training for it for about a year out. Or most people should be. <laughs> um, some people just like 
give it one month and crack on. Um, and still pass. <laughs> and still pass, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, if we're taking that example of someone who's training for selection for a year, once or twice throughout that, giving them, you know, once at the beginning to be like, hey, this is where you are now, and then once towards the end, not close to selection, but towards the end of their training process, uh, giving them that exposure to high output after sleep deprivation, how their body's going to feel and how their body's going to feel like a day or two after the fact that they've had bad sleep. Because we all know that one night's sleep can actually, or one bad night's sleep can actually affect you for a couple of days afterwards in terms of like your hormones, um, hunger, energy levels, things like that. It's not just like, a, oh, I had, I had shit sleep on Sunday night, but on Monday night I had good sleep, so everything else is hunky-dory. It's kind of like you need to, it's a, a disruption for a few days. So doing that in training and giving them a few days worth of shit sleep is only going to impact their ability to get better in training, which, you know, we're training them for high performance. So that's a bit counterproductive, really. Yeah, it's that training versus, te- versus testing idea, I suppose, isn't it? Or testing yeah. and training. And, uh, yeah, sparingly. In, in the last podcast, that is, you know, out of all of your training sessions, how many of your training sessions are training and how many of them are competing or, you know, testing, as you say, yeah. you know. And I see that there's a there's a big, um, or that when I was in the military, there was a big, or I was starting to be a push from the physical training core from mm. CrossFit and this idea of testing every single time you go into the gym pretty much, doing four times and then having worked in that. Like, yeah. Have you seen that impact people's preparation for this? Can we go slightly <laughs> off topic, but... Yeah, and I mean, CrossFit in and of itself is a, is a good idea, and it's a, a decent breakdown, but its application to our demographic kind of falls a little bit short in that mindset point of view, in that psychology point of view, I find, um, because, and this, again, it's like, you can't just label CrossFit, because again, it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but if we were to say it really depends on the coach that in the CrossFit box or the CrossFit coach that you're that you're under as to how they view training and how they view long-term training. Because really, you know, tactical athletes aside, fitness demographics, fitness and health demographics, why does somebody who's not competing need to ever really test their 1RM back squat? You know, if we're training someone for body composition, why do I need to know how strong their back squat is for one rep? regardless of like all the other factors of how well they're trained or if they can even perform the movement, stuff like that. So, you know, that really falls short for me in terms of why are we testing people so vigorously all the time in this, in this sport of fitness. (laughs) Um, But in terms of our, our demographic that we're discussing, yeah, like testing should take place, but within our training programs, we look at testing every three months. So you know, it takes a long time for the body to change. There's no point in changing things every week or every month because, you know, unless there is something drastically wrong with your program and you're not seeing any progression, in which case you probably want to look at some other stuff like sleep, nutrition, hydration, uh, even getting body work, mobility, uh, therapy, that kind of stuff. Um, before changing your program, I'd argue, uh, 
just because you're not progressing on your program doesn't mean the program is wrong for you. It just means that there is something that we need to increase, decrease, or change. I think so, that's an important point, isn't it? It's, it's necessary to understand that the program doesn't necessarily just mean the exercise prescription. It's also the, the lifestyle prescription, the nutrition prescription, the gut health prescription, all of these sort of confounding factors. So if you're on... Mm-hmm. If you want, I suppose, if you want a stoic program or on a base training program, and you're like, "Oh, this isn't working," and then you're not have stop, and it's what people do. They now start to look for the be- the the next best thing, yeah. And um, that you, you may need to take a step back and actually look at, look at yourself and go, "Okay, what am I doing? Yeah, that could be affecting my performance in the program." Yeah, big time, big time. I mean, I think as coaches, we all know that program hopping is a big thing. So people will start a program, run it for a week and be like, well, you know, that's not working for me. And it's like, cool, that was one week. (laughs) Um, The body does not change that fast, especially when we're looking at strength, strength changes, Um, neurological changes. Yes. Pattern recognition. Yes. But when we're looking at actual strength changes, um, from a structural point of view or conditioning based changes from a structural point of view it takes months. So sticking to it and being like, you know, maybe this program doesn't feel like it's working, uh, right now, but I'm going to give it another month. I'm going to give it another two months, but I'm also going to clear up a lot of other things like my sleep, like my nutrition, like other things outside of the program and just see if that makes a big difference. Go for it, Stefan. So, uh, just talking about the adaptation phases from your training, uh, and you said about testing every three months, is there a specific type of periodization you're using with tactical athletes, whether that's people going for special forces selection, whether that's emergency services, whether that's, you know, your foresters, tree surgeons, is there uh, a specific type of periodization you're using uh, in order to recognize those adaptations that are occurring? In terms of periodization on our program, uh, a lot of the periodization we do with the strength training aspect is very linear. Um, We're just looking at a linear progression for strength because we're trying to get bodies strong and robust more than anything, which doesn't necessarily mean that we're trying to get someone to the absolute peak level of strength that their body could output. You know, say, for example, if we're training a powerlifter or an Olympic weightlifter, their strength periodization is going to be way different because we're trying to push up, um, although arguably linear periodization still really works for that demographic as well. So in terms of our strength, um, for the majority of it, it's linear. We use some conjugated approaches as well. And we also do like, I suppose, modified conjugated approach in terms of lumping it in with the conditioning aspects as well. Um, so one week we might drop the strength input, but really heighten the conditioning aspect. The next week we might drop it um, like towards the beginning of the week and increase it at the end of the week. So it varies. So it's kind of more towards like an undulated approach as well. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. I want to try and put it back onto the uh, like nutrition and sleep thing. Again, being quite specific, I've I've, I've done some reading myself into because I'm, I'm dealing with a couple of clients in this realm into um, the digestive aspect of going for a ruck or a long run. Again, yeah. the, the runner's gut part of it, <laughs> the, the nickname for it. Yeah. And actually, fiber being a a big big um, is a big what's the word it's coming up a lot 
around the mm. endurance realm. Like, is there anything specifically that, uh, in terms of a macro content, in terms of what they should be eating, um, yeah. that you would recommend for someone? So should it be higher carbs? Should it be higher protein and fats? Getting higher fiber or lower? So, so for us, it kind of really goes back to what you're used to. So if you're used to a low carb, high fat diet for performance, which arguably is probably the worst um, diet for ultra marathon or endurance based stuff. Uh, but if it's what you're used to, then it works for you. doesn't necessarily mean there's not something better, but it works for you at the moment. So then changing that and having like uh, very rapidly digestible carbohydrates that you're just plowing in during the event is probably going to lead to uh, leaky bumhole syndrome. Um, <laughs> the, the biggest thing that we look at is not just taking on carbohydrates. Yes, carbohydrates are important. Yes, they are the biggest thing that's going to help fuel you for a long period of time and they're easily digestible. But if you take on just carbohydrates, um, so like carbohydrate gels, things like that, that is going to definitely lead to GI upset. Um, looking at things that are rich in carbohydrate, lower on in fiber, a lot of people opt for like tracker bars and trek bars and high fi high fiber bars like that because you know they're you know how many calories are in one it's a little bit easier to carry it's easier to just eat that going along although a couple of people who i've spoken to who have used that strategy on the hills um always regretted it because they're like yeah they're dry as fuck i cannot <laughs> can't eat them um which then inhibits how many calories they can get in because they simply cannot like chow it down fast enough um so yeah rich in carbohydrates lower in fiber low-ish in fat um there's uh, some decent research into fat sources for fuel but uh it's not really conclusive and it's not really been tested in an appropriate demographic in my opinion for us to then be suggesting it to our demographic especially when the stakes are so high so we stay away from that but you know, going back to that um, 200 to 500 calories per hour, uh, we go for about 0.75 grams per kilogram. Oh, sorry, 0.75 um, per kilogram uh, per hour of carbohydrates of body weight and then 0.25 of protein per kilogram per hour. Um, that's really like what we try and give to our people to, to work on and to practice with variations of that are individualistic so if someone goes a little bit higher on the carbs or a little bit higher on the protein it's down to the individual and their taste preference because that's another big thing is like if you're eating things that aren't really palatable you know when you're at rest then three four hours into a, a really long ruck you're not going to want to eat that and that's going to really inhibit actually how well you do subsequently in the task from that Excellent. Um, so what about uh, hydration then as well for people that are again, going through this phase? Like how important is that? Is, have you got a recommendation uh, for that in terms of litres per hour? Again, yeah, I mean, hydration is massive, right? Hydration links into uh, nutrition and how much you can absorb. And actually, like if you have uh, high carbohydrate intake, 
uh, low fiber intake and you're trying to absorb water, the, the gut lining doesn't really like that. So you end up just having a lot of water still in your gut and not really permeating your small intestines, uh, not really being absorbed and therefore sitting in your gut and coming out very fluid-like. <laughs> um, so again, to try and avoid that runner's gut, nutrition really should be preemptive and should be structured as well, in my opinion. If you're about to embark on a really, really long uh, endurance-based task, having about 250 milliliters, so a quarter of a liter uh, in the half an hour before an event, getting, getting that on board to start with, and then looking at 250 milliliters to, to half a liter probably every hour, um, depending on how... And again, like there's, there's two selections a year, right? Winter and summer selections. So summer selection, your nutritional intake and hydration intake need to be geared towards more, more of the fact that you're going to be sweating a shit ton more. But on the winter selection, you're still going to be sweating. You're just not going to be noticing it as much. So it's still important to be on top of that and to actually be preemptive with it rather than just being like, oh, well, now I feel thirsty. At that point, it's probably you know, way too late in the day to, you know, at that point, generally people smash too much hydration uh, and then that sits heavy in their gut, swishes around a bit, makes them feel uncomfortable, distracts them from their task. So again, you know, not leaving things up to chance, much, much like we were talking about with nutrition, like plan your nutritional strategies for different timed events. Also plan your hydration strategies. So what hydration you're going to be taking in, are you going to be using, um, electrolytes, which you should be, you know, you need to replace electrolytes as you're going around. Um, what electrolytes are the most palatable for you? The electrolytes that you're using, do they have high amounts of carbohydrates in them? So most electrolyte drinks, um, like off the shelf drinks are just super, super high in sugar. You need a little bit of carbohydrates to absorb sodium and potassium, but you don't need them in the quantity that sports drinks, um, Powerades, Lucasades, things like that will have them in. The main reason why they have so much sugar in them is because drinking sodium, potassium, electrolyte drinks usually taste like ass. So they put a lot of sugar in them to make them more palatable so that people buy them and then they make them all funky colors. So kids buy them, <laughs> which is not necessarily a good thing, but actually, um, Pedialyte is probably one of the best hydration replacement or like a electrolyte replacement things and it's because it's used in hospitals to replace fluids so they don't really care if it's palatable or not it's there to save your life yeah excellent stuff did you have any questions will no you've been a bit quiet i don't have any questions no because i was trying to think of it from like a listener's perspective um there's nothing kind of that's gone unanswered um yeah. which is a good thing so that's that's good <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think it's just important, especially if you're going through the selection phase, to make sure, I suppose, make sure you're eating enough. Um, yeah. And we, we talked a little bit previously about eating solid, like something a bit more solid. Like what, yeah. what brought you to that idea and what, why is that important? Like solid foods over um, but, like liquid replacements, that kind of stuff. Yeah, like I, I suppose over energy gels and uh, yeah, and tracker bars and like what is it? about solid food and what do you mean by solid food and baby baby foods and things like that 
Yeah, well, don't underestimate the power of a jam sandwich, right? <laughs> um, especially like you, you can measure a jam, like the, the filling that you're putting in a jam sandwich. Uh, it's really palatable. It's easy to eat. It's, you know, it's pretty small. It's pretty light. You can put as much or as little jam in it as one as you want to get the sugar intake that you need. It's got protein in it if you if you buy the right bread. So actually, jam sandwiches pretty decent. You can actually work with them really really well. Uh, a lot of people will opt to try and carry lighter stuff or as light as possible. But this comes back to your training. If you're training to just the standard that they want you to but then you're not really considering like oh i need an extra five kilograms or a couple of kilograms worth of food and a couple of kilograms worth of water with me as well um that was a little bit of a, a misstep in your training going up to that so why we prefer solid foods over or not prefer but why we advise to be taking in solid foods is down to that gut down to how well your gut can di digest and absorb things. If you're just taking on fluids, just taking on carbohydrates, the rate of absorption doesn't really match your output. So you're absorbing, you're trying to absorb things quickly. You're in a sympathetic nervous state. Your body is actually just trying to get things through the digestive tract quite quickly. Whereas if you're having more solid food, First thing, it's going to stop you from just inhaling it and swallowing it really quickly. So then you've got a little bit of digestion happening in your mouth. So chewing on a bit of a sandwich um, and make it as juicy and as palatable as possible is going to be better for you because you've got that pre-digestion and that pre-breakdown that's happening in your mouth. Your stomach then has something to churn rather than just fluid passing straight through it. And this is why we say practice the timing of your nutrition, practice the timing of when you're going to start taking on nutrition as well, because there is going to be that little delay. But in the long run, when you're thinking like, you know, some of these events are 10 hours, even 20 hours long, right? So nutritional strategies for that really need to be preemptive and really need to be structured as well to keep you going through all, throughout all of that. Have you got a, like a, a time frame that you've recommended to people in the past can, for people who can take away from this? Like uh, time frame as in like, like getting nutrition on board yeah like you, you've, you've said about like um every for, for water for instance 0.25 to half a liter per hour is it is it just like you, i think you mentioned grams per hour did you or i missed that yeah cal calories per hour yeah. so yeah 200 to 500 calories per hour and it's kind of you know at that point just try and keep it structured as best you can given the situation so what's going to be better like when you're when you're having to stop to nav quickly grabbing something out of your bag and chowing that down as you're then moving to your next nav point that's probably going to be the best option rather than trying to eat as you're slogging up a hill or down a hill trying to make up speed that kind of thing so timing it according to okay so i've got to my next nav point now i've got a nav to the next one that's going to give me like a, a couple of minutes to grab something out of my bag sling my bourbon back on and get moving again so in that regard the structure then kind of is semi there already but if you're naving from point to point and those nav points are two or three hours apart then you've got to be like okay well i'm going to need to eat something halfway through this so just being aware of your time being aware of how long you've been moving for without having had any food intake 
and trying not to leave it more than an hour. Yeah, I think I think the preemptive part is quite an important part of it. People, again, from my experience, they tend to eat when they start getting hungry. Yeah. Um, as opposed to going, okay, I'm, I'm going to try and stave off hunger. Yeah, and the main thing is like your body's not going to really feel hungry while you're moving because uh, our bodies are kind of designed to ignore hunger when we're on the move, when we're being active. So if you have a, a heightened stress output, that's going to diminish your hunger hormones and actually like the signaling you get from that. So yeah, don't don't rely on hunger as being an indicator of how or when you should eat. And same thing with thirst as well. Don't rely on thirst or the feeling of being thirsty before you hydrate. Excellent stuff. Stefan, did you have any questions? Any more questions? No, I'm all good. I've actually got a shoot now. Cool. No uh, I thought we could probably sum it up there unless there's anything else you wanted to add, Alex. No, I think that was pretty sweet. Yeah, definitely. So um, for those that are listening, if you are um, going through these uh, special forces, uh, parachute regiment, marine uh, selection processes, then uh, get in touch with Stoic. They will be able to help. And uh, if you have any questions you're more for them and you, for some reason you can't get in touch with them, you're more than welcome to direct them to us and we can pass them along if we can't answer them. Um, but until next time, or most likely be another time, I think uh, sleep, we could probably touch on a bit more, can't we? Um, yeah, we will say bon voyage. <laughs> 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 it's the only thing I could think of. Right, peace <laughs> out, guys. <laughs>